Thank you, Davis. I'm Larry Grantham, and I'm an alcoholic. Morning, everybody. Beautiful place you got here. I'd like to thank the committee right off, and then I'd like to uh, apologize to the committee and everybody in this room. You know, when we get a chance to go to these places and be involved in these things, I always like to take full benefit. I like to be there from the time it starts to the time it closes. Well, unfortunately, due to some business that uh, came up, I got to go to Wichita this afternoon. So, Cliff, I'm gonna miss you tonight, but uh, I'm sure I'll get that tape and relive this convention through the wonderful world of electronics. I didn't miss Mike last night, though. I tell you, I'm glad he talked about perception because that's that's uh, what I have trouble with. We'll get into that a little later. Before we get too far along, I'd like to thank Ross and Kizzy, our friends from Frankfort, Kentucky, for playing show for this weekend running around and doing things, and then uh, at this time I'd like to introduce my best friend to you, my wife Peggy, she's, <clears throat> I would encourage you to be here about 2.30 this afternoon when she's going to tell you the real story about how we got sober and what happened in our lives, uh, it seems I have some of the details kind of messed up, you know, but she's in a good mood, so y'all enjoy it this afternoon because she won something in the raffle, and uh, you know. When uh, she goes out to these places, y'all allow her to do that, then uh, she, she's in a pretty good mood. You know, uh, I guess I better tell you I'm a redneck. Uh, I heard uh, Mike up here last night talking like those North Carolinians. Um, I don't have to try to imitate the uh, Mississippians <laughs> since I'm one. I, I was a redneck before redneck got to be cool, you know. And I'm a native Mississippian, and I, I didn't even know what a native Mississippian was until recently, and a guy uh, defined it for me. He said to be classified as a native Mississippian, Mississippi is uh, composed of 82 counties. And you've got to have gotten drunk in all 82 counties. And I, I thought it back over it, and I, I qualify, I'm a native Mississippian. I grew up out in the country from a small town. Now, you know, this small town was Crystal Springs, Mississippi, and it's about... Oh, uh, 5,000 people, and I grew up eight miles out in the country. And when I went back into Alcoholic Anonymous and I was doing this fourth step and writing this stuff down, trying to figure out why I was an alcoholic. You see, I was really flabbergasted when I read the book, and they didn't have a chapter in there that said why we're alcoholics. I thought that'd be a natural. It says how, you know, how it works, and then it says all these other things, but it never said why we're alcoholics. So I wanted to know why. And, you know, I, I went back through my life, and... Uh, I got, I came from a very large family and we lived out in the country. We didn't have indoor plumbing and we didn't have running water and, until I was almost grown. And, uh, I had five older, I mean, I had five brothers and sisters. I had three older sisters and two younger brothers. And of course I felt like since we were so poor that, uh, you know, maybe I was an alcoholic because I had to wear hand-me-downs to school. See, it wouldn't have been too bad, but I had three older sisters, you know, and that, that, but I doubt if that's the reason I'm standing here this morning. You know, Mike talked about perceptions last night, and, uh, you know, there's not another alcoholic out of the five siblings that I have over my brothers and sisters. So it, it's not what happened to us. It's, it's how we perceive what happened to us. And I wasn't happy with the way I was, I was raised, to be honest with you. You know, I thought I deserved more out of life, and I wanted to get away from that environment that I was raised in. So I set about at an early age, working on a little bit of athletic ability that I had, to try to become an, an athlete, I thought getting out of that environment I was raised in, the easiest, quickest way for me was going to be through athletics. And so I really started trying to work on it. And my dad played a big part in this because my dad was a very, he, he was a disciplinarian. 
And when all his kids went to school, he said, well, he said, uh, you know, they're all, you're all average students. So you can make C's and everything's okay. You can just be average. But if you're going to play any sports or you're going to participate in any correct extracurricular activities or you're going to be involved in anything other than going to school, you've got to make the honor roll. So my dad uh, demanded that we make the honor roll if we were going to play sports in school. And so, of course, I had to make the honor roll. But I realize now that I had a lot of character defects as a kid. You know, I'd rather I, I'd rather climb a tree and tell a lie than stand on the ground and tell the truth. You know, and and uh, that one story I don't know where y'all ever heard of Jerry Clower up here. Now Jerry Clower calls himself the mouth of the South, and he he tells these stories, and he usually tells them better than I do. But he's not here this morning, so I'm gonna go ahead and tell it anyway. <clears throat> I don't know what you probably hear if you're out in the country somewhere. You still probably got some gravel roads. And in the summertime, they get kind of dusty. And, you know, most times where the big gravel roads cross out in the country, they, they have a store there, a little country store, or at least that's the way it is down in Mississippi. This particular day, the Electra 225 skidded up to the store, and this stranger, he might have been a Yankee, I'm not sure, but he got out, and he was going in to get a soda pop, and he saw this little 10-year-old kid sitting on the front of the store there, and he thought he'd have some fun with it. And he said, son, I bet you can't eat that whole watermelon. And the kid looked at him and looked at that watermelon and he said, I don't know, Mr. Slat, that's a big watermelon and I'm not really sure where I can eat it tonight. The guy took a $10 bill out of his pocket. So I tell you what, if you eat that whole watermelon, I'll give you this $10 bill. And that kid looked at that watermelon, looked at that $10 bill, and looked at that man and he said, I don't know, Mr. Slat, that's a big watermelon. But if you'll wait right here, I'll be right back. And I can tell you where I can eat that watermelon or not. And the kid took off up dusty road to the house, you know, kicking up dust with his heels. About 20 minutes later, he came running back down that road, kicking up dust, and got down and said, yeah, yes, sir, mister, I can eat that watermelon. So he sat down and ate the whole thing, the seeds, rind, the whole deal, you know. <laughs> Finally, that man said, well, son, I'm going to give you this $10 bill, but said, first, got to tell me why you had to go up to that house before you could even tell me where you could eat the watermelon or not. He said, well, sir, so I tell you, he said, you know, that was a big watermelon, and I really wasn't sure I could eat it. But you know, he said, we had one under the bed at the house up there the same size. And I knew if I could eat that one up there, I could eat this one down here. <coughs> so you see, that was part of the character defects I carried with me on into, into high school. And as luck would have it, of course, after I, I could participate in sports in high school, and the University of Mississippi came down and offered me a scholarship to go up there to play football and baseball. Now, back in those days, we called the University of Mississippi the Country Club of the South. And I, up at that point in my life, I'd come from a very religious home. My mother and dad were, well, we were really, as Jim W. says right there in Texas, we were really Southern, Southern, Southern Baptists. We even prayed for Catholics down there, you know, so. <laughs> but my... uh I had some primary purposes in my life when I went to the University of Mississippi. I was going 200 miles away from home to school on a scholarship to play football and baseball. But you see, I wanted to learn about alcohol. There was no alcohol in our home. I'd never been exposed to it. And I was an athlete in high school. And we didn't smoke. And we didn't drink. And we didn't do all those other things that they seem to be doing today. And, and uh, when I got to Ole Miss, I wanted to learn about alcohol. It was one of the primary purposes in my life. Because I felt like the man of the world that I wanted to become, to get out of that environment that I was raised in, to get to the point in life of where I wanted to be somebody, I had to become a macho man. Certainly, I had to know about alcohol. So when I got to the University of Mississippi, I got with the upperclassmen, the older football players. And we came up a highway and went right up to Memphis, Tennessee, which is the largest town in that area. Oxford, Mississippi is 90 miles from Memphis, and we went right to Memphis, Tennessee. 
and we stopped at the first liquor store we came to. And I was a rookie about drink buying booze. I didn't know anything about booze. I didn't know the difference between beer and wine and whiskey and bourbon, gin, anything. But I went in there and I had a limited budget because I came from humble means and, and I didn't have much money in my pocket. And I looked around that store and all at once my, my, my eyes fell on a gallon of Mogan David wine. And it fit my budget. So I bought it and I carried it back out the car and this was in the late fifties and when I got it out of that car, I took a paper cup and some ice and put that ice in that paper cup and poured that Mogan David wine over it and drank it down. And I can stand here before you this morning and tell you exactly how it tasted and what it did for me. You know, it kind of burned a little bit going down through your throat and down here into your stomach, you know, and, you, and then all at once your fingers started tingling a little bit and your toes started to kind of curl up a little bit, you know, and your stomach got rosy and kind of felt like you swallowed an umbrella and it opened up on the inside of you, you know. But I figured, you know, that if uh, one glass of that wine made me feel that good, then two glasses of that wine would make me feel twice that good, and so I drank it down. I can't tell you this morning how much of the wine I drank that night. We went on over to West Memphis, Arkansas, and we partied, and, and I do know today, standing before this microphone this morning, that all the classic symptoms of alcohol was present in my life the first time I drank alcohol. The book told me many, many years later when I got to Alcoholic Anonymous that men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I certainly didn't like to taste that Mogan David wine, but I liked what it did for me. And then also the definition, and I believe it is a definition of alcoholics in the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous. I hear people say that there are not definitions in there, that they're only descriptions. But I believe the definition that I like that's in the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous says simply, alcoholics are men and women who's lost the ability to control their drink. It don't say when you lost it, where you lost it, how you lost it, or why you lost it. It says you lost it. You lost the ability to control your drinking. Once you lose it, you'll never regain control. It even uh, tells us about the men that lose their legs. Men and women lose their legs, and they'll never grow new legs. Neither will we ever regain control. Then that morning, when I drank that first wine, I went in a blackout, and I got in trouble, and I passed out. And to me, when I, when I got to Alcoholic Anonymous 30 years later, I figured out that those were the symptoms of alcoholism. But see, I didn't come to the next day and say, well, I gotta go sober up, go to Alcoholic Anonymous. You know, I was 17 and a half years old. And I made a decision the next morning that I could drink alcohol if I only drank a certain amount. And that decision is probably uh, another reason I'm standing here in front of y'all this morning trying to figure it out for myself, you know, making those decisions. But I went on with my college life, and I, you know, it was, that's probably the greatest time of your life is four years you're in college. And, uh, you have very little responsibility. All I had to do was be able to play football, and everything else seemed to fall in place. I, I didn't really go to class much, and in retrospect, I look back and I see that my priorities in college was football, girls, drinking, and I don't know where the classroom came in down in there. It was down in there somewhere because I didn't show up there very many times. I was trying to think about, I was telling somebody last night, I, I'm probably the only guy that went to college four years and was totally untouched by a college education. <laughs> but we had some good football teams while I was there. We went to the Sugar Bowl twice and the Gator Bowl once at the end of football seasons, and we were only eligible to play three years back in those days. We couldn't play as freshmen. And uh, we went to Sugar Bowl two years at the end of the season and the Gator Bowl one year and as a reward for having good years. And my senior year, uh, we played both ways, offense and defense. This was in the 50s. And we played it both ways. And uh, my senior year, we scored, our team scored 327 points in 11 ball games. And we gave up uh, 
21 points in 11 ball games. So we had some fine football teams. And uh, Oh, yeah, and I dated two Miss Americas while I was there at Ole Miss, too. And that ain't got nothing to do with drinking or football. I just want y'all to know it. See? <laughs> but after my senior year at Ole Miss, the phone started ringing. There was this thing called professional football. And you got to remember, this is back in the late 50s. I don't know about TV up here. TV wasn't much down in Mississippi. You could just see a few shadowy images jumping around, and that was what they called TV. And I'd never seen a professional football game in person. I've never never been to one and never really could see anything on TV because it was just kind of images. And they started talking about professional football. It's probably like that Andy Griffith. Y'all remember Andy Griffith? And he made that record about uh, what it is as football. He finally figured out at the end of it that uh, he figured out the object of the deal, and that was to get from one end of a cow pasture to the other without either falling down or stepping in something. That's kind of what I knew about pro football. But they started coming down to Oxford, Mississippi there, where I was going to school, and they started piling that money up on the table, and they started calling it a bonus to sign. And they started piling it up there, and National Football League, Baltimore Colts. I think we had a Baltimore gentleman come in here. They came down there, Weeview Bank and his staff, and they came down and piled that money up on the table as a bonus. And then this team in New York, in the brand-new American Football League, they had never played a game. They were fixing to start in 1960. They were there, and they were piling that money up. When it got to $1,000, I'd never seen $1,000 in one pile. I signed my name, and I took off to New York City to play pro football. Now, I'm here to tell you all that I'd like to think that everybody in this room is going to stay sober the rest of our life, but I don't believe we're going to make that. So I'm here to tell you, if you had not found a place you can drink the way you want to drink, fast as you want to drink it, if they don't serve as fast as you want it served, or as long as you want it served, or the way you want it served, you might ought to try New York City. <clears throat> them places up there, they know about alcohol. They got them little places on every corner almost, and a lot of places in between the corners, and they call them uh, restaurants. To qualify to be a restaurant, you got to serve Slim Jims and crackers and a lot of booze, I can tell you. But for the next 13 years, I pursued a career that it'd be hard for me to stand up here and describe to you this morning. You know, it's just, I never had dreamed that, that my life could be that good. You know, you stand underneath the goalpost at Shea Stadium on Sunday afternoon, the largest city in the world. You're playing pro football in New York. You stand underneath the goalpost on Sunday afternoon, and they call your name and your number as a starting right linebacker of the New York Jets, and you run out on that field and know that you're on TV, and, you know, it just kind of does something for your ego. I don't know. It <laughs> Finally, my third year of pro football, see, I decided it's time for me. I wanted to fly my mother. My dad had passed away. My dad had died in 1961. And this, by this time, it was 1963, and I wanted to bring my mother to New York. She'd never been to New York, so I, you know, I know what y'all, I know what we do down south at Thanksgiving. I'm not sure exactly what y'all do here. Y'all are kind of borderline on a north and south deal. But down south at Thanksgiving, we have cornbread dressing. Well, when I got to New York, they didn't know nothing about cornbread dressing up there. So I decided to fly mother to New York for Thanksgiving. And uh I picked her up at the airport. She got off that plane. She had a pan about this big around. She was going to make dressing for everybody in football, I think. <laughs> but on the way home that day, since my dad had died and he was a disciplinarian, I decided I better talk to my mother. You see, we had this sponsor up there called Ryan Gold Beer. They sponsored all our games on TV. And uh, they told all the players, they said, hey, we want you drinking our beer, so we'll send you some beer out to where you live, just give us your address, 
And if you run out, let us know. We'll send you more. And, you know, and, and uh, they're going to send you two cases a week, every week, regardless whether you need it or not. And so I decided I better prepare mother because I'd gotten into drinking. And, you know, that's all you do in football is you drink and play football and drink and play football and then drink and play football. It's never ending proposition. That's all you do. You've got a lot of free time and uh, you wind up sitting in the bars and doing this. So I decided I needed to prepare mother because she was going to be there for a few days. And so I went away out to where we lived that day. I said, Mother, uh, you know, I'm the lightest linebacker in professional football. Matter of fact, I have a tendency to lose weight during the season. I, it just kind of takes the weight off and beats me down. And matter of fact, the team has uh, suggested that I, I might drink beer to keep my weight up. <laughs> Mother didn't say anything. We got out to where we lived out there on Long Island, and there were eight football players that lived in the same apartment development. And that day, Ryan Gold had delivered 16 cases of beer and stacked it in my foyer. Mother took one look at that and she said, son, how much weight they want you to gain? <laughs> well, we had a lot of good times, a lot of good things happened in football. Unfortunately, you know, I was either drunk or sober and I can't tell you all the good things that happened when I was playing football. I, I do remember one time we were playing the Bears up here and y'all know Butkus and how mean and tough he was. And we had this little wide receiver named Don Maynard who weighed about 175 pounds and he... We lined up there on offense, and Maynard lined up out there, and Butkus looked out there and said, Maynard, you come back across this middle, I'm going to bite your head off. Maynard said, well, Butkus, if you bite my head off, you'll have more brains in your stomach than you got in your head. <laughs> but if you remember the history of football, the American Football League was over here, and the National Football League was over here, and, you know, they didn't even play each other. They hated each other for the first few years. They tried to get players to sign and jump from one team to another and, and give you a lot of money and all this. And finally, they got tired of all this. In 1967, they decided to get together and play one game, National Football League against American Football League, for the World Championship of Professional Football. And somebody coined the phrase, Super Bowl. So the first Super Bowl that was ever played was played in January of 1967, Green Bay Packers won the National Football League, and the Kansas City Chiefs won the American Football League. They played in the first Super Bowl ever played, and Green Bay beat the hell out of them. Super Bowl II was played in January of 1968. Again, Green Bay won the National Football League Championship. This time, the Oakland Raiders won the American Football League Championship. They played in Super Bowl II. Again, Green Bay beat the hell out of them. All at once in December of 1968, the New York Jets were playing the Oakland Raiders in Shea Stadium in New York for the championship of the American Football League and for the right to go to Super Bowl III. We beat the Raiders that day 27-23 to in a real tough ball game. Same day, Cleveland and Baltimore were playing for the championship of the National Football League and for the right to play in Super Bowl III. Baltimore beat Cleveland 34 to nothing in Cleveland that day. So it was going to be the New York Jets against the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. Well, all the smart money and all the prognosticators and all the bettors and gamblers, they installed the Baltimore Colts as 19 and a half point favorites over the New York Jets in Super Bowl III. Well, I'm sure y'all know what our attitude was about that. And besides, our young, illustrious quarterback named Joe Namath from Alabama by way of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, he got behind a podium such as this to accept an award on Tuesday night in Miami when the game was going to be played the following Sunday. 
And some heckler in the back row told him, he said, oh, Namath, why don't you sit down and shut up? Baltimore's going to kick your butt on Sunday. And right off the top of his head, Joe said, no, partner, you got it wrong. The Jets are going to win the game, I guarantee it. So it became the game that Joe Namath guaranteed that the Jets were going to win. And if you remember history, we went out there Sunday afternoon and uh, we beat Baltimore 16-7. to And we became the first team at, in the American Football League to ever win the Super Bowl. And actually, we changed the history of professional football. We created the merger between the two leagues because if they didn't think that the two teams were, the two leagues were equal on an equal basis, they couldn't emerge the two leagues. So they merged the two leagues late, uh, uh, right after the next three or four years. And, and I want to tell y'all, things started happening in my life right away. The next day after the Super Bowl went back to New York City, the largest city in the world, we had ticket tape parade down Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue. And there was open air convertibles, people throwing that confetti out of those office buildings and, my mind told me, it don't get no better than this. <laughs> I have arrived. I have proved to those people down there in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, that I can make something out of my life. I have proved that I can be somebody. People in New York City know where Crystal Springs, Mississippi is because I play for the New York Jets. That same hometown down there, January the 23rd of 1969, had a Larry Grantham day. Proclaimed in the state of Mississippi by uh, the governor of the state of Mississippi proclaimed Larry Grantham Day in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, the mayor and the board of aldermen there in that town signed a proclamation. And we had a parade and we had a banquet and they honored my mother and they honored my family. And by then I had two kids and a wife and, and I, I, my mind told me it don't get no better than this. Sure enough, I finished up playing pro football. This was 1969. I played through 1972. And in 1972, I was 35 years old. I made all pro seven times, played in seven all-star games. We won Super Bowl three, and I decided it was time to retire from professional football. I retired back to the same hometown I'd grown up in, where I had a wife and two kids and a house, and we were all involved in all the community affairs, all the good citizen-type deals that were going on. And within a short period of time, I became a town drunk in that same hometown that I grew up in. And I'm not up here bragging about that this morning. It's not something that I put on a resume. But that's the way it was. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't hold a job. I, I, I drank. I just drank. But you see, alcohol was not the problem. Alcohol was a solution to my problems. Because as the problems kept mounting, I kept drinking. I drank because I deserved to drink. Nobody down there had been to the places I'd been and done the things that I'd done. So I drank because I deserved to drink. So alcohol had to be my friend. It certainly wasn't a problem for me. I didn't go to jail a lot. It seems like that uh, a lot of the police force down in Mississippi kind of likes football players, and they take you home a lot. And I remember people in my hometown flashing that light over in the car, and I'd be passed out to cops, and they'd say, oh, that's just an old ex-pro football player. He's nothing but a drunk. Let's take him home tonight. And they'd take me home. My life started going downhill really fast, and I had nothing at all to hang on to. I just pick up a drink because people around me picked up a drink. And I couldn't drink, they could drink. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand the trouble and the, everything that went with it. Finally, my wife of 21 years, you know, all the cars had disappeared, all the home that we had built had been, you know, the bank took that back because I failed to pay for that. And, and uh, my life was really in disarray. So my wife of 21 years filed for divorce in that same hometown that we grew up in. And the reason she put on a divorce petition was chronic 
alcoholism. And I'm sure y'all know what my attitude was about that. You know, I might be an alcoholic, but I damn sure ain't chronic, you know? <laughs> Plus, that old girl didn't go to college, you know? <clears throat> she couldn't be as smart as I am. But I decided it was about time for me to make one of those geographic changes the book talks about. I'm not sure it was a geographic as much as it was unlawful flight to avoid prosecution there. But, you see, they had taken my driver's license in 1975, and uh, they'd asked me to quit driving on the streets and highways in the state of Mississippi. Even though I didn't go to jail, they just took my driver's license, and I didn't, you know, I had that Super Bowl ring, though. As long as you got that Super Bowl ring, you don't need no driver's license. Not down in Mississippi. Every cop stops you, they've never seen a Super Bowl ring. You show them that Super Bowl ring, and they let you go on your way. Well, my wife of 21 years filed for that divorce, and I decided it was time to move and get the hell out of Dodge. So I moved across the state line over into Memphis, Tennessee, which is about 200 miles north. I thought things would be better. And I didn't realize, though, that Memphis had the dumbest cops of any place I'd ever been in my life. When they stopped me and I'd show them that Super Bowl ring, they said, no, we need to see a driver's license. I'd say, no, that's not really how it works, you know. Well, about the same time, I ran into Peggy, and... She'll tell you a little more about that this afternoon, and her side of it is probably the best side of that. Y'all will probably learn more about it than me trying to go through it. But we set up some little light housekeeping, and uh, you know I had to have one. Of them, I had to have a caretaker. When I first met Peggy, I was really, really attracted to her because, see, she had a house and a car and a job <laughs> and money in the bank and those kind of things that we as drunks find as necessary. You know, we need those things. And, Finally, in May, uh, on September the 20th, 1985, I talked to her to marry me. You know, and she was fixing to leave, but we always handled that, and we talked to her to marry me. And, but anyway, uh, my life started, kept going downhill. It didn't get any better. It kept going as far down as it could go. And I, you know, it's hard for me to stand up here and, and uh, tell you about a drinking pattern. You know, Mike last night talked about puking and that type of stuff, Well, we all know about that. And, you know, my daily routine was to get up in the morning and have every intention in the world. And I'd go in, I couldn't hold that cup of coffee because I'd be shaking, so I'd pour something in there so I could hold it, you know, as some kind of beverage. And it wouldn't matter what it was. It wouldn't matter if it was cooking cherry. Whatever I could put in that coffee and I'd get that down. And then I'd start scheming and figuring out what I was going to do that day. And time I had two more drinks, you know, the day was shot. I was, I was going to get drunk again regardless. And that's what I did on a daily basis. And Peggy will tell you a lot more her version of that this afternoon, but I, that's all I did was drink. I stayed self-employed, though. If you stay self-employed, you're not going to get fired. I called myself a manufacturer's rep, and I didn't have anything to sell. But I had this organization set up. It was me. And if I, anybody came along and wanted me to sell anything, I would. Didn't make many sales. Didn't have much to say, but I didn't get fired either, you know. But my normal day, I'd get up in the morning, get through that deal, and I was going to call somebody or make appointments or do what a salesman does. And, you know, by 10 o'clock in the morning, it was all over with. The day was gone, and here I was, drunk again, and no money coming in, and whatever I could con and manipulate and do the things we all have to do to live. And I did whatever was necessary to live. Finally, on May the 25th of 1986, I was coming up one of the major streets there in Memphis. And I don't know what you call it up here. I've heard it called everything from a whiskey-driven truck to a, but anyway, it was one of these cars, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll tell you, you know, mine was basic blue, it had a green fender on this side, and a rusted out fender over here, and a red one up here, you know, 
and bailing wires that you tie down the hood and the trunk to keep from flying up while you're driving it, you know. That's the kind of car I was in, and I was coming up one of the major streets there, drunk as usual, and no driver's license used. I hadn't had one in, well, it was 1986. I hadn't had a driver's license in 11 years. And uh, this idiot... Up there, four cars in front of me was trying to make an illegal left turn, and I knew it was illegal. I mean, I might have been drunk, but I can read. It had a sign that said, no left turn. And you know, football players, y'all may think that we're kind of not real bright, but you know, when you come out of college, most pro football players make a decision on where they want to go into rocket scientry or football. Uh, for instance, I'll tell you how smart they are. Mine was basic blue. It had a green fender on this side and a rusted out fender over here and a red one up here, you know. And bailing wires that you tie down the hood and the trunk to keep from flying up while you're driving it, you know. That's the kind of car I was in. And I was coming up one of the major streets there, drunk as usual, and no driver's license used. I hadn't had one in, well, it was 1986. I hadn't had a driver's license in 11 years. And uh, this idiot... Up there, four cars in front of me was trying to make an illegal left turn, and I knew it was illegal. I mean, I might have been drunk, but I can read. It had a sign that said, no left turn. And, you know, football players, y'all may think that we're kind of not real bright, but, you know, when you come out of college, most pro football players make a decision on where they want to go into rocket scientry or football. Uh, for instance, I'll tell you how smart they are. Two of them, were leaving, they left New York driving home to Texas one year. And uh, the guy that owned the car got sleepy, so he got in the back seat, and the other guy was driving. And so they, they drove for a while, and finally the guy in the back seat kind of woke up and said, Well, Berlin, uh, where are we? He said, I don't know. We're somewhere in Ohio. He said, Well, aren't you on Highway 40, you know, going through Ohio? That's what we're supposed to be. Oh, I don't know. He said, We're somewhere in Ohio. He said, Man, you got us lost, though. He said, No, no, I saw a sign back there that said, Toodle to do. He said, Toodle to do? Curly jumps up and gets up in there in the front seat, you know, and he said, man, Berlin, you done got us lost, man. We got we to get our way. Finally, he saw a sign that said, Toledo, Ohio, five miles. <clears throat> well, you see, we, we kind of think these things through. We don't... <sighs> we don't just turn out to be pro football players. You know, we, we really think these things through, and... I knew that idiot up there in front of me, four cars in front of me, he was making an illegal left turn. So I didn't care if everybody else stopped. I didn't think I had to stop. And it was raining a little bit, but that didn't have any bearing on it. And sure enough, I rear-ended the car in front of me, and we had a five-car pileup, to make a long story short there. And the cops came, and they said it was my fault, because I was a rear car. And uh, they wanted to see a driver's license, and I showed them that Super Bowl ring. They said, no. Nah. <laughs> Then they started talking about taking some kind of test, and I said, no, I don't do well on tests. I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> and they carried me down to the Shelby County drunk tank one more time, and I'm here to tell y'all, if you've only been in jail once or twice, keep doing what you're doing and keep going, because it gets easy. You know, by this time in my life, I'd been to jail many, many, many times, and the fear of going to jail wasn't there anymore. I knew that I, they were going to take me in there, but I knew the routine, you know. Once you know the routine, it takes away a lot of that fear. So they they took my picture that night and got my fingerprints and then they put me in a drunk tank with the rest of them. And I did what I always do. I went in there and they, this one had a concrete seat about as wide as this table all the way around the 
sail. It was a round sail. And I grabbed me about five or six feet of that and laid down and passed out. That's what I've been doing for a long time, you know, going to jail. That's routine. But, you know, it's not like the Holiday Inn or nothing. You don't have to call in advance for reservations. They had a place for me when they got there. And I laid down and passed out. Sometime in the early morning hours the next day I came to. All at once I looked across the cell and there was about five or six people, men in a group, smoking. I mean, uh, they were standing over there talking and all. And I was really attracted to them. Because I was one of those smokers that Mike was talking about. And I'd run out of cigarettes the night before and they were smoking. So I, I was really attracted to their that group over there. And I went over, I was on the way over there to bum this cigarette from them. And I decided I'd better tell them how dumb the cops were in Memphis. Because certainly ex-NFL linebackers don't hang out in jail. So I need to tell them how dumb the cops were because they had an ex-NFL linebacker in jail. Probably didn't know it. And probably as soon as they figured out who it was, they were probably going to let me go. And then I decided I better tell them about me. I need to talk to them about their lives because their lives looked like they were kind of messed up. They were in jail. Of course, I was there with them, but it didn't dawn on me at the time. I, I felt, don't you know, if you've ever been in jail, you get a lot of free advice in jail. And I don't know why we lock up so many lawyers. Everybody there can tell you how to beat your case, you know. They can't get out them themselves, but they can tell you how to beat yours. But I walked over that morning, and I bummed a cigarette from those guys. And I smoked it and stood there and told them about me, and Finally, I gave out a thing to talk to about me, so I started talking about them, asking about their lives. They said, we live on the streets of whatever town we happen to be in. We work long enough, or we steal long enough, or do whatever we got to do to get a bottle, and we drink it, and we pass out in doorways or abandoned cars or wherever we happen to be. And this is our choice. This is all we want to do with our life. And then they said they were going to have to leave Memphis, Tennessee because the cops had gotten too tough on public drunk and that's all they went in the drunk tank for. And I asked them where they'd go. They said, oh, we'll go to Little Rock, Arkansas. It's about 135 miles. I asked them how they'd get there and they said they're going to hitchhike. I asked them how long it'd take them. They said, oh, 10 days, two weeks. I don't know what triggered my mind that morning, but I went back over there and sat down on that, that uh, place that I'd slept the night before in my life. Flashed before my eyes like a VCR tape. I saw where I was as a child, all the hopes and ambitions and dreams and things that I wanted to do in my life. I saw how I'd gotten every opportunity at the University of Mississippi to go to school and get a good education and how I totally misused the college education. And then I saw how the pro football, that I'd had every opportunity and we'd gone to the heights of, of uh, success as far as that winning a Super Bowl and being world champion. And I saw how I'd blown all those opportunities. And then for the first time in my life, I realized my dad had died in 1961. And I'd gone home from New York to the funeral. And I'd made a conscious decision that day based on self. You see, my dad was only 50 years old. When I went to that funeral that day, everybody was telling me how good a man he was, how great a Christian man he was, and how religious he was, and how he was a deacon in the church. And he was a pillar of the community, and he had helped so many people throughout his life. And on that plane back to New York that day, I made up my decision. If that was the kind of God that my dad worshipped, I felt like I could live past 50 without anything in my life. And so I consciously turned my back on God. But that morning in that jail cell, the book talks about it. They call it a moment of clarity, a moment of truth. And I don't know where you are, where you'll be, or where you were. If you have this moment of clarity, and it don't matter where you're drinking champagne or 
Jack Daniels or Budweiser beer or Sterno or Rub-A-Dub. It don't really matter. You're probably going to have to do what I did that morning. I got on my knees in that jail cell and I said, God help me. And it's the only sincere prayer I had ever prayed as an adult. Oh, I'd prayed those jailhouse prayers before. God, get me out of this. I'll never do it again, you know. And those things had always worked out somewhere or other. But this morning I knew I had no more bargaining chips. I knew the jig was up. Those people had told me that they were doing what they wanted to do with their life. It was their choice. I could ask myself one simple question. Was my life going the way, was this my choice? And of course the answer was no. Well, you know, being a grandiose person I had been and the background I would come from after I had surrendered to God that morning, I probably felt like that he'd zap those cell doors with lightning and let me walk out of there a free man and keep all those other criminals in jail, but it didn't happen that way. I, I got a bail bondsman like everybody else. And I got out and I went home and at first when I first saw Peggy, and she'll tell you more about that tonight this afternoon, I told her I think I need some help. And she had never been to Alanine, but she said those magic words, if you need help, you'll find it. The phone book's full of people that can help you, Larry, but I can't help you. That was on Sunday night. By then I was coming apart, the scene was pretty good, I needed a drink awful bad, but I didn't drink. All night long Sunday night I didn't drink. Monday, Peggy got up, it was Memorial Day weekend, she got up and went to work like she does every day. Even on Memorial Day she had to work back then. And she went on into her office and I called her about 9 o'clock and I said, I don't guess you heard me, I need some help. <laughs> you see, all my life, from the time I discovered I had a little bit of football ability, all my life, anytime I needed some help, all I had to do was snap those fingers and I had somebody there to my rescue. But by this time, I'd used up everybody that had ever been around my life. I'd used up my whole family. The last time I'd gotten put in jail, Peggy had called my brothers and they told her, no, you get him out of jail this time. We got him out last time. We need to take turns on this thing. And then uh, I'd used up the state of Mississippi, all the contacts I'd made through football. I'd used them up at one time or another to get me out of all the mess I was in. I'd used up all the New York jet organizations. I had no friends. Peggy was the only person in my life. But if she would have come to my rescue at that time, I'm here to tell you, I wouldn't be standing in front of y'all this morning. You'd have a different speaker. But she didn't come to my rescue. She said that if you need help, you'll find it. And then my mind played a trick on me that Monday morning. I remembered a telephone number of a detox facility 75 miles west of Memphis over in Brinkley, Arkansas. I'd never been to Brinkley, Arkansas in my life. But isn't that the way it is? If we're going to drink, we go out amongst all our friends and people. But if we're going to get sober, we got to run off and hide. <laughs> but I remember that phone number, and I called that phone number. Now, you know, I know it came from a TV ad, but I know what I did if I was watching TV and they started talking about getting sober and not drinking. I fast forward to another station if I had one of them clickers in my hand, you know. But I knew that phone number, and I called that phone number. And a recovering alcoholic was on the other end of the phone. He answered the phone. And he asked me, could I hang on till 2 o'clock that afternoon? And I told him I'd, I'd hang on till 2 o'clock that afternoon. And he, he said, if you can, I'll be there with somebody else who will be in your living room. And when they came in my living room and Peggy came home from work and we sat there for a few minutes, and they pissed me off. <laughs> they started telling me about their drinking. And then, I, you know, I, I knew about drinking, but I wanted them to fix my problems. I was the one that called them. They were supposed to come over and give me the magic cure. They were supposed to come over and fix my problems. 
We sat there and talked until about 5.30 that afternoon. And finally, after a period of time, I realized they knew about drinking, and I knew about drinking. They knew about getting sober, and I didn't know anything about getting sober. Because, you see, I had so much contempt prior to investigation before I got this program of Alcoholic Anonymous. I thought you had to have a brown bag and an overcoat when it's July to, to qualify to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what they were. I thought you had to live underneath the bridges or wherever, or up in the Bowery in New York up there. So I didn't have any idea about what an alcoholic was. But by 5.30 that afternoon, I was attracted to those people, and I'm so grateful this is a program of attraction rather than promotion. You don't have to promote Alcoholic Anonymous. And I would have followed them where they went, but they were just going back over there and to Brinkley, Arkansas. In 14 days, I was detoxed. And everything else that happened over there at the treatment facility, well, they call it treatment facility, detox, whatever, everything else was predicated on the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous. We read the book, studied the book, talked about the book, had outside people come in and talk about the book. And, oh, oh, except we had a session every day with a psychiatrist. Now, I don't know what y'all, where you have psychiatry in your mind. I, I got some of it up there pretty close to witchcraft in my mind, you know. I don't know why, except I do recall that every year this time of year, you go to training camp in pro football. And the first thing you got to do, you got to go in front of a psychiatrist, spend a lot of time with him, because... He wants to determine that you have not become a killer from last year. See, they want cripplers in pro football. They don't want no killers. So he has to examine you and make sure that you hadn't turned into a killer. And for 13 years, I've been able to convince him that I was just going to cripple up all the other team and put them in a hospital. You know, it would look bad if you got the paper on Monday morning and they said, eight NFL quarterbacks killed in the line of duty yesterday, you know. They couldn't stand that publicity, so they want you to cripple them up and put them in a hospital and go on about your business. So for 13 years, I successfully uh, got the psychiatrist to agree that I wasn't a killer. I was just a crippler, and I could play. So I didn't think much of psychiatry, and I'd go in this guy's office, and he'd say, Larry, how you doing? I'd say, fine. David, how you doing? He'd say, fine. He'd say, tell me about your childhood. I said, I, happy, I had a happy childhood. And we'd sit there and look at each other about 20 minutes. He'd say, get the hell out of my office. And I'd get out of his office. And I'd go right down the hall. They had a big black castle there named Larry G. At that time, he was sober for 12 years. And he shared with me. And I'm thanks God today that he was honest with me. And he told me what it took for him to get sober and stay sober. And he told me it was going to take me the same thing. He didn't, he didn't suggest to me that it might take this or that or the other. He said, this is what it's going to take. This is what I had to do. This is what you're going to have to do. I got out of that place in 14 days. I went back to Memphis, Tennessee. And I don't know how it happened. But we wound up going to a meeting with some of the greatest, well, today they're the greatest old-timers in the world. Back then, I wasn't so sure. You see, they told me at their meeting that I could be their football expert. And when they got ready to talk about football, they'd call on me. <laughs> and I went there an awful lot, and they ain't talked about football yet. <laughs> but what I learned was as Four basic things we're going to have to do. We've got to read and study the book. We're going to have to go to meetings. We're going to have to get us a sponsor. We don't drink. I said, well, that was pretty simple to me. And, of course, I didn't have a sponsor, and I wasn't really involved in a home group and all these other things. So they assigned me a sponsor. Just whatever macho football player needs. A little short flower man about that tall. He's in the wholesale flower business in Memphis, Tennessee, and he's been sober now 23 years this October, and 
our relationship has blossomed, although I thought at times it was bent on destruction. But he's, he said those brilliant things that we all need to hear. Like, how important is it? Hell, it's important to me, you know. I, or live and let live. And all those real wise sayings we got around Alcoholic Anonymous. I don't know about y'all, but just putting a plug in the jug didn't do it to me. I had some pretty heavy amends to try to make when I got sober. I owed that internal revenue a lot of money. I hadn't even filed a tax return for five or six years. I, I don't know. I'd file for an extension every year. Then I never would file anything else, you know. <laughs> they kind of frown on that. And I had to go make amends to them. I had to make amends to Peggy, my wife, after two years of being sober. You see, for the first two years that I was sober, I ran to this meeting and that meeting and over here and over there and went to a 12-step call here and did whatever my sponsor said and a lot of things he didn't say. And and for the first two years, I worked strictly on me, I think. I hadn't. I, my relationship was not any better after two years of being sober than it was after those years of, of drinking. And I had to go back to Peggy and I had to tell her that I didn't know anything about relationships. That I had to... From this point forward, if she was really to work, uh, really would work on it, we'd work on it together. But if for the first two years, I was probably the sorry husbands I'd ever been in any time in my life. And she, we agreed that we would work on this relationship. And today, we probably have a finer relationship. I've never had a relationship this good with any other female in my entire life. Because you see, she's my best friend and she's, she's the grandmother to all these eight grandkids we got and she's, uh, just, we just love each other to death. We just have the greatest life that we could possibly ever imagine. I had to go down and make amends to my brother. I got a brother two years younger than I am. He was born club-footed. When he was born, and by club-footed, his didn't mean that he, he had a big foot. His foot was turned completely around. And he didn't have any Achilles tendon in the back of his foot. And uh, through a series of operations from the time he was born to the time he was six years old, they broke his foot and turned it around and kept it in the cast. So consequently, one foot is a lot, one leg is a lot smaller than the other one. But when he got up in high school, he played sports and he played football and basketball and baseball in high school. And when I was in all those glory years at Ole Miss, I demanded that they give my brother a scholarship. Well, they brought him to Oxford and they gave him a scholarship, but it wasn't the same type of scholarship I had. He didn't have a full free ride. He had to live behind the gymnasium and he had to serve on the uh, line at the uh, lunchroom behind the serving counter, and, and he had to do some things to, to make his scholarship work and where I had a total free ride. Well, he took advantage of the system, and he got a CPA degree, and when he got out, he's he done well in life. And as you all can well imagine, when my finances were in the pits, I had to go to him, and when I went to him, I beat him out of a considerable sum of money. But you see, in my mind, I had it placed in that place where it says, uh, I was responsible, I, me, 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 was responsible for his college education. So this was a payback deal. But my sponsor, when I wrote that stuff down on this piece of paper, he took it and threw it in the garbage and looked at what he looked at it and threw it in the garbage. He said, you know, uh, evidently this is bothering you. You're going to have to go down and make arrangements to pay your brother back ever since that you've ever gotten from him. And I didn't like that. But you know, I did it. Because you see, the book says direct amends. And it says complete amends in the original manuscript. And I think Bill W. was trying to get over the point that if we owe a man $100, we're going to have to pay him $100. And I believe he meant if we gotta to have to make amends to people, we gotta do it face to face. We can't call these people on the telephone and think that's sufficient. 
this program today has saved, of course, saved our lives. You see, that counselor over there, the guy that was so close to me, that Larry G., told me one other thing. He said, this is all about surrender. you got to surrender to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. I heard uh, some people talk about Chuck C. from California. He got called into Atlanta, Georgia one time by all the gurus and Alcoholic Anonymous, all the doctors with all the big PhDs behind their name over in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and uh, they had a meeting for over a weekend of seminars and workshops and all this stuff. And when Chuck came out of that, somebody asked Chuck, said, well, what do they know? What do they really know about alcoholism? He said, well, they know a good bit about alcoholism, but they know very little about surrender. So this counselor over there uh, impressed on me the idea that I had to surrender totally to this disease of alcoholism. And I said, well, how do you do that? You see, I thought I was a self-made man. I'd pull myself up by the bootstraps from down here in the country in Mississippi, and I'd gone to the big city of New York, and I'd done all these grand and glorious things, and I had never surrendered to anything or anybody. And he said, well, you may have to compare it to something that happened in your life. You know, sometimes on Sunday afternoon when the score, when they'd shoot that gun and the game would be over with, and we'd be behind 54 to 10, we'd go in the locker room and we'd talk about just running out of time. Hell, if we hadn't run out of time, it'd been 100 to 10, you know? <laughs> But we couldn't surrender because we had to play the next week or the next year or whatever it was, so we never did surrender. And so finally I did a lot of thinking and a lot of research about things in my life, and, and finally I did remember that there's one time in my life that I probably surrendered. The Miami Dolphins had this fullback named Larry Zonka. Matter of fact, he's from over here in Ohio somewhere, and I'm probably too close to his home place right now. Because you see, Larry Zonka wore number 39 on his chest. He was a fullback, and I was a linebacker. And you don't believe his number was 39, I'll show it to you. He tattooed it on my chest where he ran over me so dang many times. They had him listed in a program at 235 pounds, but I know dang well his right leg weighed 235 pounds. I, we played him twice a year, and every time he got the ball, I had to tackle him. And finally, one year in 1971, we went to an all-star game in Houston, Texas. And we're going to work out all week. We got there on Sunday. We're going to work out and play the following Sunday. And so we were staying in a hotel there close to the ballpark. And all at once, Larry Zonka and I were roommates. We got to room together for a whole week because we were both playing for the East team. And we are going to play the West All-Stars that Sunday. All week, we chased women and drank and played cards. And we didn't catch none of the women. But, you know, we had a great time. And I finally came to the conclusion he was just a good, tough football player, just a fine guy. The very next year, that September, we were out down in the Orange Bowl, down there playing Dolphins. No Bob Greasy goes back to pass. He's a quarterback up here at Purdue. And uh, he gets back there to pass, and our big old tall defensive end named Verlin Biggs was in on top of him, you know. And they call it throwing out of a well, and Greasy was having to throw the ball up high. And Larry Zonka had come out on a little circle pattern over on my side, you know. And I'd backed up in a 15-yard zone defense. And I saw him sneaking out there, and I saw Greasy fixing to throw that ball out there, and I got me a 15-yard running start. It was time to tattoo Olaz Locke. It was going to be payback from all the times he's ever run over me because I had him totally defenseless. He's looking back over his head like this to catch that ball, and I'm coming from out there. He don't know I'm on the football field. I got there just as the ball touched his fingers, and I hit him in his, in his chest with a helmet just as hard as I've ever hit a human being in my life. And I knew I gave him my best shot. We fell down. The ball went off over here. And we fell down there in the pile up, you know. And I want to tell you all I was hurting from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. But that was the best I had. 
that was everything in my body. Now, usually when you catch them defenseless like that, in pro football, you know, they come get them on a stretcher. So I kind of looked up to see where that stretcher was coming from. I didn't see no stretcher. And I felt that moving that pile up there by me, and I heard this boy say, Larry, how's your wife and family? <laughs> I surrendered to Larry Zonka right then. <laughs> now, that's been 25 years ago. And I, if he came in that door right there, I'd make y'all a new door right here. <laughs> but I have stayed surrendered to Larry Zonka. And you know, isn't that the way it is with alcohol, though? You go to these meetings, you see these people, and they say, Oh, I hadn't had a drink in 90 days. I can have a drink. No. Total surrender is what the program requires. You know, the old-timers told me when I got here that they had been restored to pride and dignity. God, that appealed to me. You know, I wanted to have the ability to walk down the streets of any town you happen to be in and look people in the eye and be restored to that pride and dignity these people talk about. Alcoholic Anonymous has given me this. Two years ago, we were in a conference in Yazoo City, Mississippi, down there. And all at once, the New York Jets called, and they were going to have a reunion in New York, and they invited Pig and I to go. And it worked out where I was going to talk on Friday night down there. And Peggy was going to talk on Saturday afternoon. And she decided she couldn't go because she had an obligation. So I made, I did my deal Friday night. But Saturday morning, I went by and picked up my nine-year-old grandson and carried him to New York City for the weekend. Just he and I. I had him down on the playing surface of the Meadowland Stadium just minutes before the kickoff of the, between the Jets and the New England Patriots. And his eyes were about to big around. You know, you can't stand no closer to God than that. You know, my daughter would not let me out of that city or that county down there with my grandson had I been drinking the way I drank. So yes, pride and dignity and all rewards that come with it. I'd like to leave you all this morning with this thought. I thank God our Father and above all our friends for lifting us out of the life we were in. For standing us up and letting us know that life's never over until He lets go. For our great program of truth and concern for our brother, for our book, our fellowship, and our love for one another. Our thanks we offer, but in deep gratitude we pray for His gift of life, ours for today. I love all y'all. Thank you.